you would please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of 1 Timothy. There we will resume our study. The last time that I was with you when we looked at 1 Timothy, we looked at the very end of chapter 3, and we talked about the mystery of godliness and how Paul lays that out to Timothy. Well, today we're transitioning from the mystery of godliness to back to the, the central issue of, or at least a primary issue for Paul's reason for writing to Timothy in the first place was to warn him about the false teachers and how he must deal with those who are teaching a false message. So we come back around to that. And, and I think it should not be lost on us that this is not the first time Paul has mentioned about dealing with false teachers in this letter. We don't turn there now, but if you were to turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, it is almost identical in beginning to 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul tells Timothy yet again that in the last days, errant teachers will come preaching a false message and to be ready. And so we need to remember that the reason that the Bible addresses false teaching so much is, A, it's an important issue that we have to deal with, right? But B, because it is so prevalent. I mean, if you just think about our world and you think about the stuff that passes off as truth, it's easy to pick on the prosperity gospel. Uh, That's the low-hanging fruit. But there is more intricate stuff, which, by the way, I don't, I don't know if y'all saw Creflo Dollar's speech this week where he said that all his teaching on tithing for years has been wrong, that he told people, don't read my books or listen to my material on that. I have now been confronted. He used the phrase, the gospel of grace, and it has changed my view. He says, I was wrong powerful. Um, Yeah, amen, amen, because when the truth, that's why do we contend against false teaching? For that right there. So Paul is is laying bare here what Timothy's going to deal with, what Timothy is dealing with, and I appreciate what he does in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 to 5 because it's a very sobering text. Um, You've I don't know how many times you've read the the letter to Timothy, these pastoral epistles, but I wonder how many times it's really sat, it's really percolated in your mind that Paul is equating false teaching with the teaching of demons. Demonic. <laughs> so not just wrong, demonic, coming from a very specific power. And so as we're dealing with that today, that's where we're looking at. And this is, it's, it's so important for us to grasp this concept that we understand what false teaching is and isn't, okay, and we need to clarify also what it's not, um, and we'll do that here in just a minute. We need, we need to understand that it does flow from a power, a real power that we have to contend with. And so without further delay, let's turn our attention now to the text itself. We'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5 this morning. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 
For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So in the reading of God's word, he add his blessing. Please pray, pray with me. Father, we're here. We're not here for any other reason other than to be transformed by your word, to be captured by your truth, to be renewed by your strength. So we submit ourselves to you, our minds and hearts, and, <clears throat> and we ask that you meet us here and transform us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sorry, I'm going to have to do this. In July of 1982, a woman by the name of Joanna Michelson chronicled her experience in a book called The Beautiful Side of Evil. Joanna had been sucked into the occult, and part of that was the occultist teacher, he called himself a guru, if I remember correctly, maybe not, I may, may be misremembering that. Either way, the person who was leading her, she at first thought it was at odds with Christianity. He said, oh, no, no, you can have a deeper relationship by doing these New Age meditative things and getting your spirit guide. And so she bought into this, and the things she saw, I'll, leave you, I'll let you get the book and read it. I'm not going to explain the whole book up here, but the things she saw and experienced were, it's just wow, what she saw. But it almost destroyed her. As she was told through this cult that she would have a deeper relationship with Christ, and these false teachers, they offered a better relationship with Christ. We'll give you a better one if you'll do what we'll do. In other words, they get outside the Bible. Yeah, the Bible's okay, but you need to do what we're telling you to do, and that's how we're really going to get to the truth. That's what they did to her. That's what false teachers do. They offer this better relationship, but they choose unbiblical methods. Joanna eventually saw truth. She ended up going to Labrie, Francis Schaeffer, and really getting ministered to and coming to a knowledge of the truth and has a great testimony of her faith in Christ. The book is The Beautiful Side of Evil. If you're ever interested in reading it, it is a, I promise you, you probably haven't read a book like this one. Um, it is very it can be tense at times. But as she saw the truth, she saw, and she recognized this in the book, she saw that what she was doing was actually being powered by demonic power, that what she saw was display of demonic power. And oddly enough, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Timothy, the false teaching that is leading people away in the later times, in the last days, that is not just uh, misguided, it's demonic it's under a false power that's leading people away. When we often think of false teaching, we do. We, the, the, the words that come, can come to mind is, oh, it's misguided. Or perhaps we may even say, well, that doesn't seem biblical. We'll use that kind of way to describe it. But how often do we stop and think, that's demonic? Because Paul is warning us here about false teaching that comes in to subvert the gospel is always going to be powered by a demonic power. Anything that wants to subvert the truth of God is not a friend of God, it is a foe, and it is set, it's got its sights set on destroying, if it can, the kingdom of God, which we know that it can. So Paul makes it clear here that the false teachers coming in Ephesus are not merely misguided, they are following the teachings of demons. That's what he tells Timothy here. And this is a sobering truth, uh, because it's that reminder that False teaching is not just wrong, right? It is wrong, but it's not simply wrong. It comes from a demonic power that seeks to subvert the gospel. 
Sometimes people do it unwittingly. I grant that. But all, all too often, it is knowingly. It is knowing, knowing what they're teaching is false or heretical or unbiblical. It's demonic. So, I've used this phrase, false teaching, before. <laughs> Let us clarify this. False teaching is not anything I don't agree with. Uh, people t- tend to... Tend to to, to set themselves up by, well, if you don't agree with me, then you're, you're following false teaching, brother. No. So our false teaching is not merely opinion. It's not merely anything that you don't agree with. False teaching is something that can be demonstrated from the Bible to be wrong. Like, you're taking the Word of God, and you're misconstruing it, and I can look at you and say, well, no, that's wrong, because this is actually what the Word of God says. So when we think about uh, prosperity preaching, for example, that we just mentioned a few moments ago, it's very clear that we can come to Scripture. There's so many scriptural things that we can point to and say, well, no, this is wrong because of this right here. That's what we're talking about with false teaching, things that are clearly not biblical, things that are clearly against the truth of the gospel. Because we can have friendly debates and disagreements on the more tertiary issues, but there are some fundamental things, i.e., if someone says Jesus is not God, that's a false teaching, Right? That's what we're, it's, even the virgin, the virgin birth didn't happen is a false teaching and so forth and so on. So there's some fundamentals of our faith that we, that whether we have different theological positions in other areas, we're going to agree on these things. We have to because it's fundamental to the Christian faith as a whole. So as we noted in chapter 1, uh, I noted this in chapter 1, that Paul had warned the Ephesian church. If you remember in Acts 20, Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that wolves are going to come in among you. He told them that they would, and here we are, Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, and indeed, wolves had come in among, and now Paul is instructing Timothy on how he has to deal, on how he's got to deal with this issue here. Because Paul is reminding Timothy and us that part of the work of overseers, which we talked about in chapter 3, part of the work of overseers is protecting from false teaching is winnowing out and, and being the eyes and having the eyes and the discernment to see what is right and real. And um, part of the, what the elders do as a team of elders here, one of the things we're on guard against is false teaching. And that's why that it's important for you to listen even when I'm preaching and to listen well, because you want to be a Berean to understand that what I am saying is coming from Scripture and not from Brad's back pocket or Brad's opinion. So it's important for us as overseers to guard the church, and that's what he's telling Timothy. But you know what else he's telling Timothy? Something that he also wrote in the letter to Ephesians, to the Ephesian church. Timothy, you're not wrestling with flesh and blood. You are wrestling with powers and principalities. And so he's trying to remind Timothy that he's going to have to come at this the right way, not merely academically, but in the power and truth of the Holy Spirit. And so it's important for us, again, to note that Paul is talking about the teaching of demons here. When we think about who Satan is, he is the instigator of all that is false. And so when we're dealing with what is false, we are dealing with what is in some sense satanic. I mean, his first words out of his mouth in the Garden of of Eden were, did God really say, already working deception into Eve and Adam? 
The first things he spoke, or that we uh, recorded anyway. And so he is the king, the father of what is false. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this. False teaching is the work of demonic influence. That false teaching is the work of demonic influence. Um, as we're looking at this, we, we come to this realization that we should, well, we should know. That we're, this is not a natural fight that we're in here. This is a supernatural fight because we are not just dealing with natural entities. We are dealing with supernatural entities, uh, a, a kingdom of darkness that has set itself up against the kingdom of light. And so our fight against false teaching really is a fight against satanic power. That is why, beloved of God, we have to be people of the truth. It matters to God. It mattered when the Bible was being written and recorded. It matters in how we deal with people. It matters in how we, how we have relationships. It matters in how we winnow teaching and think through and use discernment, discretion to make judgments about what is good and right and true and what is false. Truth matters. And so that's where Paul is getting at here. So when he's dealing with these demons, he starts off here. Now, he says that the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So we are right here. We're dealing with two ideas I'm going to come back around to here in just a second. False teaching and apostasy. So Paul is talking about people who once professed faith who are, who are falling away, who are falling away, and they're going in the direction of demonic teaching. That's what he's talking about. And so he says here that the Spirit expressly says that in later times. So Paul is talking about some sort of revelation he got from the Spirit. So this is not Paul's opinion. This is not even Paul's observation. This is what Paul is telling us the Holy Spirit said to him in some way, shape, or form. We don't know when. We don't know how. We don't know what. He doesn't give us any of that detail. He just simply says, the Spirit revealed this to me, that in these later times, people are going to fall away. They're going to fall from the faith. When he says here, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart. That word there, depart, in Greek, is the word that we get our English word apostasy from. So Paul is not talking about people who had no testimony. He's talking about the people who Timothy was sitting in church with, who were raising their hands, who were professing their faith, who were offering up prayers, who then get deceived by the teaching of de demons and walk away and apostatize from the faith. That's what Paul is talking about. So it's much more sobering than just the one person you shared that track with, they seemed kind of interested and then they walked away. That's not what Paul has in mind here. Paul has in mind the people that you probably thought wouldn't. I won't get into it now, but when you've had someone you know well walk away from the faith, it, it rocks your world. Someone that you've seen love the Lord, supposedly, and, and be faithful, supposedly, to then turn their back on it, it does rock your world. And that's why Paul is giving us this revelation. We as a church, we need to be ready for those types of things to happen. And how are we going to deal with it when we see it coming down the pike? Well, this is where the truth matters. This is where God's truth genuinely matters. When Paul talks here about departing in later times, that later times, just think of it as the last days. He uses the phrase last days in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so assume that well, we can safely assume that what Paul is talking about here is the same thing he's talking about in Timothy 3, or 2 Timothy 3, that the last days. And what are the last days? The last days is the period of time that was inaugurated by the coming of Christ 
And now as we wait for the return of Christ, we are living in the last days. So Paul properly was living in the last days, just like you and I are properly living in the last days. And so he's saying, in the last days, and he leaves it nebulous, so we understand this is going to be an extended period of time, that we're going to see people depart the faith and follow the teaching of demons. And so it becomes vital for us to understand how do we deal with that? What does God's Word say? What is the answer to it? That's what Paul is doing here. It's funny, you know, we we live in a culture now where the word binary has become taboo, but it's interesting, in the kingdom of God, choices, the choice choice to follow Christ is a binary choice. It is. And what what do you mean by binary, Brad? Well, when you're choosing to follow Jesus, you're choosing not to follow the world. You're choosing not to follow Satan. You're choosing to mortify the flesh that is put to death. But when you choose the world, the flesh, Satan, or anything else, you are actively not choosing Christ. And so when we think about the choice to follow Jesus, obviously, I want to I make something clear. The way I understand Scripture is I know that the Spirit has to do the work in a person's heart for them to believe. I understand that. But you do actively choose this day whom you will serve. And when we are choosing, when we choose to serve something lesser than Christ, whatever idols we erect, or, or our flesh... Beloved of God is a binary choice. We are then, at that point, choosing not to follow Jesus. And so those choices that I make and that you make, they're not harmless. They have implications. They have ripple effects. Because we are choosing in those moments something less than Christ. Something much worse than Christ. Something that actively wants to kill us. I think it was C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters where the senior demon tells the junior demon that humans are food to be consumed. And that's what Satan would do. He would consume us. And so, when we don't follow Christ, we follow the teachings of demons. It is a binary choice. So this is where I'm going to say it again. we got to remember that false teaching is not that thing that's just wrong. It's evil. And we don't, we don't say, oh, you know, they'll, they'll get it eventually. We, just, we don't want to say anything because we don't want to step on toes. Or we don't want to say anything because it's not our business. Or we don't want to say anything because now it's going to make it awkward. But, beloved, we have to. We have to. When something is clearly unbiblical, we have to address it. But we've been conditioned to think that confrontation always means anger or hatred or I don't like you. And I can be just as guilty of receiving it that way, so I haven't, I haven't figured it out yet. Sometimes I take things too personally. I think all of us may struggle with that with some degree or another. But we do have to get to a point to where we understand that if we're going to be people of truth, it is going to require some confrontations along the way. And we don't have to be jerks about it. I mean, I've seen confrontations that are beautiful where the, the, the confronting brother came with tears. He was weeping because he felt badly for the other guy, but something had to be said. Oh, beloved, I just, I want for us to be the people of boldness who are ready to say what must be said for the glory of God and for the good of our fellow brothers and sisters. The good thing is, is we don't have false teaching at the chapel, and we're not going to be dealing with it under my watch by God's grace, so, but we can be continuing to edify one another in the truth to be prepared for the days when we may have to say something. 
He says, so, so false teaching is not just wrong, it's evil, because it is embracing the antithesis of God and calling it good, right? So it embraces the antithesis of God and it calls it good. He moves on. He says, now the Spirit expressly says, in later times, some will depart. And then he goes, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, this is a sobering verse when you're talking about a seared conscience. So, <clears throat> firstly, the word there for insincerity is literally the word for hypocrisy, where we get our word hypocrisy from. So, why does he call it like a, they are literally through the hypocrisy of liars? What does he mean by that? He's trying to talk, what Paul is trying to tell you is that they, knowing, they, they knowingly lie. They lie when they know the truth. That's what he's getting at there. They're pretending that it's something that it's not, even though they know that they are misleading people. Now, why would they do that? Well, hey, if I can gain by it, then that's a great thing. If I can have power over people through it, that's a great thing, at least in their mindsets. And so, yeah, they will be hypocritical liars for wealth and for power. That's why most false teachers do what they do, is for wealth and power. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's why all of them do it, because it's pretty consistent that they tend to get wealthy and exert a certain amount of power. The hypocrisy of liars. But then he says this thing about their seared conscience, and... <clears throat> Beloved, that is sobering. Some commentators had thought through the years that that word is understand it like a hot brand. You know how a farmer would brand a cow and say, burn its skin. This cow is mine. He's got my brand on it. That's not what Paul is talking about here. The word can also mean to cauterize. And so when you cauterize something, especially in the skin, you desensitize it. You burn it until you burn off the little nerve endings and so they don't have any feeling in it. I have some cauterized spots on my knee from when I had some warts as a child, and, I, and they're, they're numb. I can't feel it. That's what Paul is talking about here, a conscience that's numb. It's been cauterized. It's been desensitized. And you know what he's telling us? That these false teachers now, because of this cauterization of their consciences, now they have no moral compass. They don't care. They don't care. Like, they're not going to show compassion. They're not going to feel bad if they swindle you. They're not going to feel bad if they destroy your lives because they don't have the moral capacity to feel it. It's gone. Why? How? How does that happen? Well, when we live in rebellion, and every human being who rejects Christ is living in rebellion of what they inwardly know is true, whether they admit it or not, whether they admit it or not, because God has created humanity with eternity in their hearts, and there are some things that we know innately, and one of those things is that there is a creator. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. But, so when we, when we go against that, that is open and active rebellion. And so when we start thinking about what does rebellion do, well, rebellion, as, as we continuously ignore what we know is true and even promptings from the Holy Spirit, it's going to lead to a seared conscience. I mean, that is why the Bible says that the sin of rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Rebellious, look at what it did to Saul. It led to a hard-heartedness, and it does that in anybody. And it's the very, again, the antithesis of what we're taught in Scripture. What does Scripture say? That 
Obedience does not merit God's love. God's love is freely given, but obedience shows love for God. And as we obey His Word, we grow in holiness. And so it's natural then that Satan, demonic powers, false teachers, want to empower people to not be obedient to the truth, to ignore the Word of God, to live according to the flesh. And they say, you'll have your best life. But you don't. You still deal with depression and anger. You still deal with the actions of others that you can't control. You still deal with all the hardships that everybody else deals with, except now you've separated yourself out from the one source of hope and comfort that you have in Christ. False teachers know what they are doing. Hypocritical liars, Paul calls them, seared consciences. But it's interesting, how do we identify them? One of the things that Paul does here, he says, this is, this is how you'll know them, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, <clears throat> excuse me, that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So Paul mentions here this asceticism, an, an ungodly asceticism. He's teaching them, he's saying that false teachers teach abstinence from God's good gifts. And it's interesting here that he does this, because this, this seems to be kind of going back to Genesis 1 to some degree. Because remember, that, so they forbid marriage, but what is the negative thing? And, and the, the whole creation narrative, God is calling his creation good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then we have this like, pump the brakes moment. Oh, man was alone, and that's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. And so they, the false teachers that Paul is dealing with, is talking about they come attacking at a fundamental aspect of God's creative order. God has created man for woman and woman for man and for us to marry and to procreate and to come together in a one flesh union. And so what the false teachers are wanting to do is take away the God-given community and companionship from people and replace it with their false teaching. Reduce them down. Make them feel like holiness is in what you deny and not how you live your life. Take away those good gifts that God gave them and teach them that they need to deny themselves. If you've ever read much about the Branch Davidians, David Koresh, I know most of us in the room are old enough to remember that whole thing. I'm not going to talk about it here. You should read some of his philosophies. And that people believed it. And people believed it. Like as I, as I read it or even as I watch the documentary, I try not to be arrogant because I know I can always be taken just like, but I'm like, how in the world do you believe this? He's telling, uh, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting off track here. I'm about to get stuck in a loop. Um, read about it and, and, and share my frustration of how anybody gets caught up in that. Um, now, are some people called to cel celibacy? Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, John Stott, was a celibate man his whole life. Great, and a gift to the church. He's the exception, not the rule. So when we think of, is celibacy a thing? Sure, when God calls you to that. When God sets that up, not when some dude comes in town preaching a message that is totally inconsistent with the words you have in front of you. So we're called to enjoy God's good gift. Food, God gave food. Remember, in the creation, he gave Adam all the fruit of the garden to eat, all of it. He just said, don't eat out of that one tree. You can eat anything else you want in here. It's all yours. 
just not that one. And of course, we know Adam and Eve ate that one. Um, but that was part of God's grace to them. And what these false teachers were doing, Paul said, they're getting you, they're, they're, they're leading you to deny God's grace. And now, uh, look how holy I am. Look what I'm able to do. I'm able to reject this and abstain from that and not do this and not have that. And now my holiness is fundamental. The fundamentals of my holiness are what I do, not what God is doing in me. The fundamentals of my holiness are now about me being on display and not the glory and grace of Christ. God gave food as a, as a gift. Remember, Jesus wowed the, the Pharisees when they were talking to him about cleanness and uncleanness, and he says, a man is not defiled by what he puts into his body. He set the record straight right then and there that food is a good gift from God and meant to be enjoyed, and that the defilement comes from the abundance of a man's heart, not what he puts in his stomach. Now, there are some foods you shouldn't eat, but we're not going to get into that right now. Here's the thing. Here's Paul's counter to this. <laughs> to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So God calls us to gratitude, not to deny, not abstaining. Hey, is it good and right maybe that you would fast at a certain time? Yeah, the Bible says we should. That fasting should always be done with prayer and for specific purposes, not merely to display some perceived sense of holiness. There are some things we should fast from permanently, but food is a good gift from God. There are times to fast when we add prayer to it. But I like what he says here because it's faith who believe and know the truth, who believe and know the truth. It's faith and truth that compel us toward thanksgiving. Being people more and more rooted in the truth, so often culture expects people who think that they have the truth, they're arrogant, they're unkind, they're abrasive, and you can be. But what Paul says here is the more we believe and the more we know truth, the more gratitude we're going to have. Because we're going to know the truth of God's good gift to us through marriage, through, through daily bread. Because who are those who believe? Those who believe are those who understand that they have been rescued from sin and death by Jesus Christ through the cross. That's those who believe. And the faith that they have is that he has now got them and is keeping them and will see them on into eternity so that when they close their eyes in this world, they will open their eyes in the next and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome home, your home. And so that's the type of, those are the people who who are the ones who believe. What is the truth? The truth is the true understanding of who God is through His Word. And when we see God as He is, beloved of God, it's inevitable. We see ourselves as we are. And when we see ourselves as we are, and we see God as He is, we understand He is worthy. I am not. He is worthy. I am not. And so, this worthy God has now made us worthy through the blood of Jesus Christ and called us into His presence and given us relationships and companionships and bread, good gifts so that we could be fed by His grace. Beloved, it was William Blake who said, when the doors of perceptions are cleansed, we see things as they are, infinite. I'm going to modify that just a little bit. 
when we see things as they truly are, our gra- gratitude can, is our only response. When we see things as they truly are, gratitude is our only response. Paul wraps us up here in these two little, the first three verses of chapter four are one sentence in the Greek. This second are another one sentence. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So creation is a work of God. All right, we, know, we understand, again, Genesis 1, we understand God spoke things into being, and so we also remember the proclamation, it's good, it is good, it is good. And so when we think about another aspect of this, we don't have to turn there, but if you remember, in Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision of all these animals coming down on a big sheet. And Peter, of course, being the holy man that he was, well, Lord, I'm not going to put anything unclean in my, in, in my mouth. And the Spirit said to him, no, these are made by God. It is all clean and good. It is all clean and good. Paul is building on this idea that creation is God's work, and so it's good. That God's creation has, again, been reproclaimed to Peter as it's good. It can be enjoyed. And so, again, nothing is rejected if received with thanksgiving. We need to be thankful. He's telling Timothy. Don't worry about it. It's not about abstaining. It's about being grateful for what God gives you. It's about being grateful to the Lord for His provision in your life. That's the show of holiness. Not not eating pork or not eating chicken or not eating whatever. I mean, if you don't want to eat pork or chicken or beef, yeah, don't eat it. That's fine. But that doesn't show how holy you are. Holiness is seen primarily in obedience and gratitude. Sanctified, or literally, you know, what is made holy by the Word of God in prayer, sanctified through the Word of God in prayer. What in the world does Paul mean here? Uh, through the Word of God. Is Paul talking about the fact that God spoke creation into existence, and so in some senses it's made holy, or is he talking about the Bible itself? Well, it seems clear to me that he's talking about God speaking creation into existence, for it is made holy by the Word of God. God spoke it. And so in some sense, because what is made, it's made by God, purely from Him speaking it, it has a certain sense of holiness to it and a certain sense of set-apartedness. So it's not just common. This, this creation, you know, sometimes people make this the kind of the secular sacred distinction, and we need to remember. I don't, I don't always love that. We need to remember that creation is sacred because it's God's. God made it. It's been affected by the fall. And so we understand that there are some ills in creation that are a direct result of the fall, but creation itself, God spoke it, so it's set apart. What does he mean by prayer? For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Uh, it, it's, it's when we use prayer to set things apart for our use. So, you know, when we return thanks for a meal, we're, in a sense, setting it apart because we're about to enjoy something that God has given us. When we are, uh, well, yeah, I mean, that's the example. When we return thanks, that's what we're doing. We're setting it apart. But Paul's point here is there is nothing unholy, unrighteous about loving God's creation. There's nothing unholy or unrighteous about desiring marriage about desiring family, 
about having a desire for your spouse. There's nothing unholy or unrighteous. In fact, those are good gifts from God, beautiful gifts from God, when they are received with thanksgiving and when they are enjoyed in honor of Him. So, Timothy, you're dealing with a demonic power, but you don't have to be afraid because you have the truth on your side. And when you have the truth, beloved of God, we're dangerous. And I mean that in a good way. I don't mean like we're, it's bad for society for us to have truth. I mean like it's bad for people who own falsehoods when we have the truth. I think I'm just going to stop right there. So embracing God's truth really is our best weapon against the, the demonic. <clears throat> Sorry. We live in a world where truth is constantly under attack. Satan is well aware of the power of truth. Hence, that's where he always attacks humanity, is at the place of truth. I've already mentioned his words to Eve. Did God really say? Well, surely. You won't surely die. He just knows in the day that you eat of it, you'll be like him. It sounds so great. Where did he attack Eve? With food. What were the false teachers still doing in Paul's day? Food. Where did he attack Eve and Adam in their marriage and companionship? What were the false teachers doing in Paul's day? Still attacking marriage and companionship. What are the false teachers doing in 2022? Still attacking marriage and companionship. I mean, Satan is not that creative. He's just good at what he does. Because he's been doing it for so long. If we are to make a stand against false teaching and demonic attack, it's only going to be as we stand on and live by truth. The truth is, God has created us for His own glory and to give us good things. We live in a fallen world, and sometimes God has to discipline us for our own choices, and sometimes, maybe like Job, the suffering is for no choice or no discipline at all. It's just for us to remember the goodness of God in hard times. God does aim to lavish us with love and to shower us with grace. He says it in 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 Isaiah, for the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Any teaching that denies this is false and therefore demonic. So we embrace truth because it is our hope in hard times. Indeed, it's our hope in all times. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for truth, for your word. Oh, Father, help us to be bold in the truth, loving in the truth, gracious with the truth, faithful with the truth. Help us to stand firm in a fallen world, to be people who love you enough to say and to live the way, the things we need to say and the way we need to live. Father, may your banner over us be love, and may the world see it. Through Christ we pray. Amen.